Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 will be in 11 to 22 this morning. So Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. There is a, I'm not sure if you know this or not, but there is a DNA craze that over the last, I don't know, few years has been sweeping the nation. Everyone wants to know with 23andMe and Ancestry.com and I'm sure a host of others, uh, they want to take a swab of their saliva, which is really gross, and put it in a tube, which is really gross, and mail it off to a complete stranger, which is even grosser, who's then going to analyze it, which is really gross, under a microscope and see what kind of unique package God has put together in you. You can learn a lot by looking at your DNA. You can come to realize a lot of potential susceptibilities to disease that, that might be in your future. So hypochondriacs, it'll practically kill you. I mean, it's no good. Don't do it because you'll just fret for the rest of your life. You can understand a little bit of who you are, perhaps even who you're related to. Maybe some people you didn't know you were related to. Um, Hopefully not your spouse or anybody like that, but hopefully somebody much greater distance than that. But the idea is that by discovering a little bit more of who you are, it might help you determine what you do, how you respond, things you might, decisions you might make. As we enter into this study, we'll be looking at the DNA of the church. And my hope is that in this short little uh, series, that it will pre prepare, prepare us better for a verse-by-verse -verse study through the rest of Matthew, starting in chapter 18. We're about midway through Matthew 18. I haven't forgotten. All right. Psalms has the 20 Psalms that we, we looked at this summer. It helps us because it helps us to understand how God is establishing His kingdom and how He has been establishing His kingdom with His king on His throne, which we said back then, or I said back then, was originally David and ultimately Jesus. And in the first half of Matthew, if you'll remember way back then, has really helped us and it will help us because Matthew tells us in 4.17 that Jesus came in and he began to preach to the people wherever he went, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That he was bringing it. And your response, the only uh, okay permissible response to it, to receive it, was repentance. In our passage this morning, Paul is laying out for a predominantly Gentile audience, what exactly has become true of them because of Christ? What is it to be the church now that Christ has come in the world? And as he does that, he's also going to lay out for us an introduction to what the church really is. Sort of forms, if you will, the foundation of the rest of the series, what, it, what the church really is, what its relationship to Israel is, and how the church must think about itself. And so our applications in this series are going to be many times broadly applied to us as a collective body together rather than usually individually applied to you as a Christian. In this series, mostly it will be broadly applied to us as a church. With that in mind, let's read from Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
And He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom in Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, this is a difficult passage to understand, to wrap our minds around, and we need your help. We pray, Father, that you would light up the word in front of us. Help us to understand it really as it is. Help us to apply it to ourselves as a collective body, ourselves, our individual selves, that we might obey what you have put before us and all its implications. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in our passage uh, this morning, our goal is not primarily just to study the book of Ephesians or even this particular passage in, in relation to the whole book of Ephesians. Instead, what I want us to look at is I want us to glean what Paul is saying specifically about the nature of the church and to think about that in relation to the rest of the story of Scripture. And so here's what that means. That means that we'll be looking at many things, some of which are in Ephesians, but we will be jumping all over the Scripture, all over the Old Testament and the New Testament to understand what He is telling the church at Ephesus and therefore what He is telling us. Some would call this biblical theology. And so we're going to be doing quite a bit of that throughout this series. And so I want to warn you, that at times when we do these kinds of jumps across Old Testament and New Testament, that sometimes it can feel like you're drinking water from a fire hose. And so I don't want you to feel overwhelmed, but especially if you're not well-versed in the Old Testament, you might at first have a, a little bit of a panic attack with how frequently we jump back and forth between the Old Testament and New Testament. If you've been with us on Wednesday night for our Zoom calls, and then before then, uh, when we were meeting in person, when we've been going through First and Second Samuel, you may have a little bit of a leg up, and you might not feel quite as overwhelmed. If you've been with us on Sunday mornings going all the way back to Matthew, you may not feel as overwhelmed when we go through this. If you were with us during the Psalms study, you might feel not quite as overwhelmed, but if you do get a little bit overwhelmed, know that it's okay. It's all right. We'll parse that out over the course of the whole series. And through this series, we'll be looking at the church. And this morning, I'm mostly dealing with the universal church. And what I mean by universal church is every Christian in every place and at every time, past, present, or future. And then throughout this series, we'll be dealing with the local church. And what I mean by local church is Emmanuel Baptist Church. So what does our understanding of the church as a whole have to teach us as an individual congregation, a local church? So universal church is every Christian everywhere, local church, Emmanuel Baptist Church. And in order to get a grip on what the DNA really is of the church that God has established through Christ, we have to understand both things. We have to be fluent in church talk. So in this passage that we're looking at this morning, it's an introduction to this series, and I want you to see three things that Paul is telling us is true about the universal church. Paul is saying this about the universal church, and I want you to understand what it is. The first thing is that the universal church is the beneficiary of God's covenant promises. The universal church is the beneficiary of God's covenant promises. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, you may remember that as far back as chapter 2, verse 1, you can look right up there at the very beginning, Paul says this, you may have memorized it, he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. But then he says in verse 3, we all once lived 
in the passions of the flesh. So at the beginning of this chapter, Paul puts everyone of humanity, every member of humanity, all in the same boat. The dead boat. Which is really comforting. Not because we're all dead, but misery loves company, I suppose. But then in verse 11, and then after that, he puts the Gentiles in a worse off position. You are worse than dead. Well, you might ask, how can you be worse off than dead, Paul? I mean, the picture that he paints in verse 1 is bleak. How then can it be bleaker for the Gentiles? And so he lists a few indictments. All of them are in verse 12. You can follow the indictments. There are three of them there. He says, first, you are separated from Christ. Now resist the urge, because I know you're going to have the urge, to translate that Jesus. He's not merely saying you are separated from Jesus. Because if you'll remember, the Jews, either before Jesus in some cases or even at the time of Jesus, were separated, you might say, from Jesus. In fact, Jew and Gentile collaborated together to kill Jesus. He's saying that they were separated from the Messiah. They weren't anticipating the Messiah even coming. They didn't even know they had a need for the Messiah, much less hope for the Messiah. They had no idea about the Messiah. You might think about the secular world around you. How much do they know of their need for salvation? That would be like a Gentile prior to Christ, essentially. The second thing he says, you are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Well, now obviously, being alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, from the nation of Israel, would be a serious issue given what we just talked about, you not knowing about your need for the Messiah. So to be without the Messiah meant... Obviously that you're without hope. You have no one to come and and rescue you. But the Gentiles' case, they weren't even affiliated with the nation of Israel, so they had no way of even learning about their need for the Messiah or learning that He had come. This is basically a way of saying to the Gentiles, you weren't a citizen of Israel either. So the expectation then would be that if Israel was the one that was taught to expect the Messiah's coming, then when He came, they would be the beneficiaries of that Messiah. You follow? If they're the ones that are taught that He's coming, they're the ones that are supposed to be looking. But because you don't have a citizenship in Israel or the kingdom of God to begin with, well, you're not looking for Him. So you had no hope of even hearing about the Messiah's coming, much less benefiting from His coming. You would be considered a stranger, an alien to Israel, a foreigner. And then the last thing he says is that they were strangers to the covenants of promise. And what is the result of all of that, of all three of those? He says right after that, and that leaves them having no hope and without God in the world. That's how you can be bleaker than dead, is having not only dead, but absolutely no hope and without God in the world. So remember, this is what leaves the Gentiles in a different position from the Jews. The Jews, while they were also dead in their trespasses and sins, were in a more advantageous position than the Gentiles because they at least had an awareness that the Messiah would be coming. They at least understood that they were citizens of the nation of Israel. And therefore, they were beneficiaries naturally of the covenant promises. The covenant promises were made to them. So they would expect that at some point, God was going to come and save them from their sins. Right? If you were a Jew in the first century before Jesus, or even before then, you had some sort of expectation in the prophets that God was going to come in some way and rescue you from despair. The Gentiles had none of that. But that does raise the question then. What sort of covenants of promise is Paul talking about here? Because that's really important. When we just say covenants of promise, a lot of times it goes straight over our head. What are you talking about? 
There are mainly three that would be considered covenants of promise, that have specific, nailed-down promises tied to them that a Jew could expect. The first one is the Abrahamic covenant. Now, it's called that because you'll remember the covenant was made between God and Abraham. Therefore, it's the Abrahamic covenant. It's a creative title, I know. So, you can find this back in Genesis 12, 13, 15, and 17. It's all laid out in those chapters. We won't go through and read all of that. We've done that a number of times in here. But in general, the covenant that he makes with Abraham is best summed up in three terms. The promises of land, seed, and blessings. So there's land, there's seed, and there's blessings all tied into that Abrahamic covenant. And he promises Abraham first that his heirs or his seed will enjoy this land, the land of Canaan. So there's a promise of land there. You, your heirs, your the offspring, the ones that come after you will enjoy this land, the land of Canaan. And then he promises him, who has yet no children at this moment, he promises him tons of children. There's the seed promise. You're going to have lots and lots of children. Nations and kings will come from you. You'll, be, you'll have more than the sand on the seashore. And then he promises, this is the blessing part, he promises to bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. And in him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There's the blessing. Land seed, and blessings. Now, these are particularly important because, remember, that starts in Genesis 12. If you go back to the beginning of the book of Genesis, how does it start but with Adam, who is the tip of the spear of the kingdom of God in charge of spreading the garden all over the known world, and Adam loses all three of those in the garden. He was kicked out of the garden the land, you might say, driven out east into exile. His seed after him was to suffer and be as fallen as he was. The very next chapter, one of them murders another. And he and all who are with him, that is all of humanity, is cursed to die. So not a blessing, but a curse. But even in the midst of all of that with Adam, He is given a promise that from him will come one seed, one offspring who will crush the head of the serpent. He's given that little glimmer of a promise. And so then we flash forward to where Abraham is. And Abraham, we in Abraham, we see that the promise of that offspring is going to come from the line of Abraham. So it's Abraham and his offspring that are going to inherit the land of promise. That he's going to bring forth the one seed who is going to crush the head of the serpent. That he will not be cursed, but he will be blessed. And all those who are associated with him will also be blessed. So what you see in Abraham and in the beginnings of this covenant is the whispers, the faint whispers that God is going to reverse the effects of the fall that we see in Adam just mere chapters before. You tracking with me? This is the significance of the covenant that's made with Abraham. It's a direct reversal of the fall. It doesn't come to fruition yet, but it's a whisper of it coming to fruition. It's God's promise that it is going to come to fruition and it's going to come through Abraham. Then second, we get to the Davidic covenant. That's the covenant made with David. That's why it's the Davidic covenant. These are easy to figure out. These are softballs I'm giving you. So that was the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where he promises that his seed, here's that seed again, will never depart from the throne. It's never going to leave. It's always going to be there. So now we see that the seed that was promised to Adam is narrowed to one family in Abraham, in the family that's going to come forth from him. Then it's narrowed even further to one line, David. So the heir of Abraham is the serpent crusher. 
And specifically, the heir of David will be the king who will establish the kingdom that will have no end. In other words, he will perpetually be on the throne. The third covenant of promise that extends basically the Abrahamic covenant there is the new covenant. And we find this all throughout the prophets, this promise of a new covenant coming. But it's probably most tightly put together in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, and it says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. They shall all know me from the least of these to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now, you have to think through the prophets here, especially in the context of Jeremiah, when he gives this new covenant promise. In the context there, the Lord declares through the prophet Jeremiah that he is going to send his people, Judah and Israel, out into exile because of their sin. That is specifically the reason you're going into exile is because of your sin. And so then the Lord promises that he's going to bring them back out of exile. You remember the verse, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, right? 29.11, right? That's in the same, similar context. He's going to send them out, but his promise is to bring them back out of exile. But here's the rub. A true return out of exile is not merely them walking back onto the property. It's not just them getting back into the land like we see in the book of Nehemiah and Ezra. It's not just them walking back onto the land. It's actually them having salvation from their sin. That's when the return from exile really actually happens. And Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 33, 7 to 8. This is God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all their guilt. So how will I restore the fortunes of Israel and Judah? I will cleanse them from all their guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive them all their guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. So in other words, there will not be a restoration in the land. There will not be an exodus from captivity without the forgiveness of sin. So now I want you to think with me about Matthew's gospel and how Matthew's gospel actually begins. You remember, I know it's been a long time, by the way. I get that, all right? But just think with me. Matthew chapter 1. You remember it begins famously with that genealogy for the first 17 or 18 verses that everybody just skips over because they have no idea why it's there. But he tells you right up front in the first verse, that the person that I'm going to tell you about is of the line of David and of the line of Abraham. Oh, that's significant because all of those promises that were happening back in the Old Testament of the seed that was coming, Matthew's saying right up front, hey, here he is. He's here in Jesus. Now, right after that, same chapter, chapter 1, but the next passage over from that, the angel tells Joseph that Jesus is coming that your fiance is born, has a, has a, is pregnant, but don't worry about that. It's fine. It's of the Holy Spirit. You're going to name him Jesus, and he is going to save his people from their sins. All of Jeremiah's prophecies are coming back to us now in Matthew chapter 1. All right. So Jesus then, right after that in chapter 2, what happens to him? Herod comes, strikes the people. He is exiled into Egypt. And just like Israel in the book of Hosea chapter 11 is called the Son of God, Matthew tells us this fulfills, when Jesus comes out of Egypt, this fulfills what was spoken by the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. 
Well, Hosea was speaking about the corporate body of Israel, the nation of Israel. But Matthew says the fulfillment of that is narrowly the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So broadly, the children of Abraham, the nation of Israel, would bring forth the seed. Then narrowly, David specifically will bring forth the seed. Now, in the book of Matthew, pinpointed on one individual, this man, Jesus Christ. And what Matthew is saying to us, he is Israel. What does that mean? He is Israel. It means all of the covenant promises, all of the hopes and dreams of the nation of Israel that God would fulfill his promise comes to bear on this one man's shoulders. Jesus Christ is taking the burdens of a nation on himself. He bears all the hopes and dreams as the true Son of God on his back. So we've been introduced to the one who's going to save his people from this, their sins, the one who, like Israel, is the Son of God who is exiled and is now coming out of exile. And it's right there in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 3, where he introduces us to John the Baptist. Now that's significant because John the Baptist is told to us that he is standing there throughout the, the wilderness, proclaiming throughout the wilderness and standing in the Jordan River, crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths. This image comes from Isaiah where the people are going into exile and Isaiah tells us there's going to be one coming who proclaims out into the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, he's coming. He's going to walk into the land, and he's going to walk into the promised land. He's calling out east of the promised land, and the Lord's going to walk into the promised land, and he's going to lead all those in exile who still have their sin on their backs. He's going to lead them into the promised land. And so John is in the river calling out, get out of his way. Make the road straight. Roll out the red carpet, we might say, that he might lead the exiles into the promised land. And who should appear on the scene right then when John calls that out, but none other than this man, Jesus Christ, who has come to save his people from their sins. Not only saving them from their sins, but as it turns out, giving to them a new heart with the advent of the Holy Spirit that he is bringing and dwelling with them and in them so that we then might be able to obey his commandments in direct fulfillment of Jeremiah. But this is where Paul says in Ephesians, come back to Ephesians, look at verse 13. This is where Paul says to us, but now in Christ Jesus you Gentiles, you are way off the reservation, but now you who are far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So you were way out there. We were out there, but you were way out there. We were in exile in the wilderness, but you were halfway around the world. But now in Christ, you've been, you've been brought in, Gentiles. So we were reading the Gospel of Matthew, and we see, oh, he came to save his people from their sins, and we're thinking, oh, great, this is fine. Yeah, the nation of Israel, the Messiah is coming. He's going to save his people from their sins. And that, hey, look, this is just like Jeremiah. That's great. Congratulations, Jews. And then in the middle of the New Testament, bam, revelation falls on all of us and the apostles in the book of Acts, where they realize it's not just the Jews, but the Gentiles too. In fact, what we find out in the New Testament is some of the Jews were cut out. Chiefly, remember the Pharisees and the scribes? They're the easy pinata we can beat, but there's children that follow after them. They're of their father, the devil. They're cut out. And then a whole host of Gentiles were brought near and included with believing Israel. But I want you to notice something about verse 13. Paul reverses all all of the things that made the Gentiles worse than dead. 
He reverses every single one of them and now applies them to equally to both Jew and Gentile. So before Christ, Gentiles, you were without the Messiah. Now you haven't. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Now, Paul says in another book in Romans, you've been engrafted into Israel. You are strangers of the covenants of promise. Now, you've been included in Christ, in the new covenant, which, because of Christ, makes the old covenant obsolete. All right. Now, what I just said might give some of you hives, might have caused some of you to bristle. It made the old covenant obsolete. That's exactly the language the author of Hebrews uses in 8.13. He says this, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Told you. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now why has he included us as Gentiles? Why are we included? Why do we benefit from all those covenant promises? By being included in Christ. Merely by virtue of the fact that Jesus Christ has earned, He has merited all the blessings of the covenant. He was perfectly obedient and all the blessings of the covenants have come to Him. And by virtue of the fact that you are associated with Him. Remember last week? It's your confidence in association with Christ. Merely by the fact that you are associated with Him. Because he inherited all the covenants and you are associated with him as his disciple. You gain all the blessings. Why is that? Because remember what God said to Abraham? I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's Jesus. We know that's ultimately about Jesus. That they're gonna, he's going to bless those who bless Jesus? Are we blessed because we bless Jesus? Yes. Would you be cursed for cursing Jesus? Yes. And through Christ, all the nations of the earth are blessed. So we receive the blessings of all the covenant promises that Jesus has earned merely because we are associated with him. The true and better son of God has merited it for us, and he shared it with us because we associate with him by faith, Jew and Gentile alike. Now, that's the first point. Second and third point are much shorter, so here we go. Second thing that Paul tells us is true about the universal church is the universal church is the product of a restorative work by Christ Jesus. The universal church is the product of a restorative work by Jesus Christ. Paul's going to show us two ways in which Christ has accomplished in the church this restoration process. Two relationships. First, he says, he restores Jew-Gentile relations. The first restoration is Jew-Gentile relations. So Paul is clearly writing to an audience that is, uh, has some sort of familiarity with Judaism. They probably have a lot of Jews in their congregation or we should say former Jews, Jews turned Christian in their congregation. And some way, otherwise, they know about the hostility that has existed between Jews and Gentiles. And he says in verse 14, look there with me, he, Christ has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So because of Christ, there exists no distinction between Jew and Gentile. That's what Paul means when he says that. There is now no distinction between Jew and Gentile. He, that is Jesus Christ, has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one. We're united. No distinction. You cannot say it any clearer than that. However, sometimes... What Paul says here can cause fights in some churches. Ironically, between Gentiles. So the retort usually is something like this. 
You're saying that the church replaces Israel. You're saying that the church supersedes Israel. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying Jesus is Israel. Jesus fulfilled it all. He is the perfect king that God has set upon his holy hill. Remember? Originally David, ultimately Jesus. Jesus is that king. And he so perfectly, unlike David, he so perfectly lived out all that was in the commandments. He lived out all the, the, the qualifications of the covenants that he merited all the benefits of every covenant in the Old Testament so that there is nothing left to fulfill by anyone. He's completed it all. There's nothing left for you to do. There's nothing left for anybody to do. And by this, he saved his people from their sins. And then, shocker of all shockers, he brought the Gentiles along with him, which for reasons known only to him, included you and me. We're just beneficiaries. That's it. Anyone now, Jew or Gentile, that is in him is now a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. That's it. We're part of a new creation. It's over, guys. Wrap it up. The fat lady is singing. It's the reason Paul says in Romans 10, 12 to 13, there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. That's Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I don't replace anybody. I don't supersede anybody. Christ fulfilled it all. And in him, he united us all. And anyone that wants eternal life will be united into his body. And that's the universal church. So if anyone, past, if anyone in the present, or if anyone ever, ever, ever in the future wants to be saved, you must belong to Christ. Paul says in Galatians 3.29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That's it right there. Tell the Pharisees in the first century, these Gentiles are Abraham's offspring. Oh, they were mad at John for saying you can raise up rocks. Worse than rocks, he raised up Gentiles. He's restored Jew-Gentile relations. Tom Schreiner puts it like this. The hostility between Jews and Gentiles has ended and they are now one the law with its commandments has been abolished, which means that the covenant made with Israel at Sinai is no longer in force. In the old covenant, ethnic Israel constituted the people of God, but now there is one new man in Christ Jesus. In other words, Jesus is the true Israel, and the restored Israel is marked out by all those who belong to him. So first, he restored Jew-Gentile relations. In the second act of restoration, Jesus restores our relationship to God. He restores our relationship to God. We are one body through the cross that he, and in the cross, he reconciled us to God. So never could the, could the blood of bulls and goats ever satisfy. But what Christ did on the cross to satisfy the stipulations of the new covenant was he went to the cross and there on the cross for his people to rescue them from their sins he died for them. There on the cross, he absorbed the wrath of God. In other words, God emptied the wrath that he had toward you and me out on Christ, the covenant bearer, and put him to death. And the Old Testament and New Testament alike tells us God was pleased to crush him. Why? Because it meant the rescue of his people. So there on the cross, he bore our sin. 
And through that sacrifice, he restored our relationship to God. Finally, Paul tells us about the universal church. The last point about the universal church. The universal church is the people of God and citizens of his kingdom. Paul assures the Ephesians and us Gentiles as well in verse 19 and following that though we were once strangers and aliens, we are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What does it mean to be the people of God? What does it mean to be the people of God? The true people of God, listen to this, Old Testament and New Testament alike, the true people of God have always been comprised of those who trusted in Christ alone for salvation. Now, that statement surely is making some of you go, wait a second, what are you talking about? Abraham was a long time before Jesus. No way could he have trusted in Christ alone for salvation. Well, Jesus actually tells us in John 8, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Old Testament saints were looking forward to the day when God would send the Messiah to rescue them from their sin because they felt, they knew to be true the effects of the fall. New Testament saints are looking back at when he did redeem them through the Son. But both believe God and it is counted to them as righteousness. That's said all the way back in Genesis and it's true of us today. So then, God can say about the people that he's calling, the Jews that he's calling around Mount Sinai, He can pull them out of Egypt and he can gather them around Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. And he can say about them, he's telling Moses to go tell the people this. He says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So then what does Peter do in 1 Peter? But he takes that very statement about the nation of Israel gathered around Mount Sinai and he applies it to the Jew-Gentile church in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 where he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received received mercy. But let's understand what Paul is saying in Ephesians. The church is not merely a new creation as if it was a new fabric created out of whole cloth. Just appeared as if from nowhere, as some people will say about this passage in Ephesians. No, Paul actually corrects that understanding of Ephesians and says this instead in in verse 20, that what Christ has done is he has built the people of God, his people of God, on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What does that mean? As closely connected as the Jew, Jesus was, to the Old Testament prophets, As intimately connected as he was to the apostles, so too is the structure that he is building on top of his foundation. So too is the church. Being formed by the Spirit of God into a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. We have become Christ's citizens in the kingdom of God. So what does that mean then? The DNA of the church is Christ's blood. But that means this about the church, that the church is the body of people. It's a body of people called by God's grace through faith in Christ to glorify Him together by serving Him in His world. That tells us something of fundamental importance about the function of church here on earth. 
In other words, our DNA helps us understand who we are so that we might better understand what we do. So there are two real direct applications. One is individually, and the second is corporate. First, individually, we represent the kingdom of God in our lives. You represent, as a citizen of the kingdom of God, you represent the kingdom of God in every aspect of your life. You are always under God's rule, and what that means for your allegiance is you are exclusively aligned with God and His kingdom. You are exclusively bending your knee in full submission to Christ over all. And He supersedes all governing authorities. And so in the church, we are Abraham's heir. So what that means is that God's whispers of the reversal of the fall are coming true inside the church. You feel that? The whispers of the reversal of the fall as far back as Abraham are coming true in the people of God. Why? Because he has taken away the heart of stone and he has replaced it with a heart of flesh. Like it says in Jeremiah, that they might obey him. Which is exactly what he's done by giving us of his spirit. So that governs then how we speak to one another, how we speak about one another, how we treat one another, the environment that you feel in church when you walk into it, that's hard to quantify, but you know when it feels tense or angry, you know when it feels happy and joyous, These are your brothers and sisters, part of a new creation that have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside them and are gradually growing into the image of Christ. That from this point forth and forevermore, forever, forever, everlasting, everlasting into eternity, we are going to be together. Does that govern how you think about the person sitting next to you? Collectively, as a church, as a whole church body, our role is to be a collection of the citizens of the kingdom of God. In our church body, we are a collection of citizens of the kingdom of God. So that means if we're all collectively submitting to him, we are governed by his authority, not our own. Whatever he says, that's what we do, period. No questions. Well, you might ask, well, how do we know what that is? How, how, how do we know how we're to be governed? What processes we're to follow? God's people have always been shaped by his word. Whether it was audible word, word through the prophet, word Jesus Christ, or word the Bible, his people have always been shaped by his word. Well, how do we ensure that everybody in here, the guy sitting next to me, and the lady across the room from me, how do we ensure that we're all on the same page here? That we're all getting down to the same thing. That's the role of confessions and ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We ensure that we're all on the same page. We're making this covenant together to be citizens of the kingdom of God together in our church. Well, how do we function? Like, how do we move about? How do we, what's the organization like? That's leadership roles in his church, he's laid that out too. Well, how do we take care of the, how do we, first, how do we ensure that that person across the room is truly with me in the citizenship of the kingdom of God thing? And what happens if they're not? That's membership and discipline. That's part of the church order and processes as well. We are the people of God. Jew-Gentile, pertinent in our nation, African-American, Caucasian, Hispanic, all of us. He's made us all one. Every tribe, 
every language, every nation, every tongue. Let me ask you, have you ever gone to a foreign country, sat down with somebody who looks nothing like you, has a completely different skin color, speaks an entirely different language, and have you ever sung hymns together? You haven't. You should really experience that. Because at that moment, you realize, I am distant from you in just about every way possible. Yet somehow, I feel closer to you than my own siblings. How is that possible? Because church, in the body of Christ, he has taken many from wildly different backgrounds and put us together in one body singing praises to his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have done this. Pray for our understanding of this so complex, so deep, so hard to wrap our minds around sometimes. Pray you would help us to process it. Think about the ramifications to feel the complexities and the burden that's on us as Christians, as members of a church community. How urgent it is for us to come together in mutual adoration of your name. Agreeing without equivocation, we love you. Because we love you, we love each other. Please do this in our church, churches of Tuscaloosa, churches of our world. May we show secular world that is as divided as it has ever been what they are missing. Jesus' name, amen.